I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, under the heading of Living for God, continuing our theme through the Ten Commandments, how we are to live for Him. And the title is Guarding Our Purity. Guarding Our Purity from 2 Samuel 11. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. In the spring of the year, that time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house when he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out from the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of the Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in this letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, And then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting, fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot out from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not the woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died a Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went, And came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your tack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of God. May we receive it with a believing heart. And we'll turn now also to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 41. Lord's Day 41 from the Heidelberg Catechism, which can be found on page 248 in the Forms and Prayer. Lord's Day 41. Question 108, what is God's will for us in the seventh commandment to which we respond that God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside the holy state of marriage? Question 109, does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. This is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. My most dear friends, I probably don't need to convince you this evening that sexual immorality is a huge problem. Our culture, the culture in which we live, is flooded with sex. We are bombarded with sexuality at the mall, in songs, sports, at the beach, in movies, on YouTube, on our phones, and the magazine racks at the checkout, just about anywhere you look, sexuality is being thrown in your face. One example I often think of is that when I was still in seminary, I drove up from Michigan, or to Michigan, many times from Indiana to do pulpit supply here for you, probably about 10 or 12 times. And after the evening service, I would drive back to, towards Chicago and you could just see all of these billboards full of scandalous images down I-94. Now in fairness, every other one was about why you shouldn't get an abortion. But you see that this, you couldn't even drive down the road without having these images thrown at you. We live in a culture absolutely flooded with sex. As we come to this evening, to this seventh sermon in our series, Living for God, we are reminded what the seventh commandment says in question 92 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 
you shall not commit adultery. And this isn't only about what you shouldn't do. This is also about what should be kept holy. Remember that every good and perfect gift comes from God, and that includes marriage, and that includes sexuality within marriage. The seventh commandment is about guarding sexuality. Keeping our purity holy. And what we have seen from the beginning of time is that there may not be a commandment more attacked than the seventh commandment. In the day and age in which we live, purity has become worthless. Isn't it true, boys and girls, that to remain a virgin until you're married nowadays is considered shame? Not something to be valued? Our young people today are encouraged to experiment with their sexuality. Encouraged to experiment with pornography. I'm reading a book right now about transgenderism, and one of the things the author says is that in the state of California, you can scarcely find someone in the public schools now who does not identify as either a homosexual, as a lesbian, or as a transgender. Heterosexuality is no longer in vogue. You see, the seventh commandment isn't just about cheating on your spouse but it is a call to protect and to guard your body from all impurity. That's what the catechism says. It's about all unchaste actions, look, talk, thoughts, desires, or what might incite someone to them. And we need this commandment. Not just because we live in a world that is hyper-focused on sexuality, but because we live in a church that is affected by our sexualities as well. Folks, let us not look down our noses at the world and the culture here this evening because sexual sin is an issue that the church needs to deal with as well. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book on the Ten Commandments and pastored a church just down the street in East Lansing. He says in his book, 90% of all the difficult issues he went through pertained to sex and marriage in his ministry. It's an issue that the church needs to deal with as well. And this becomes very clear in the story of David. That even though he's Israel's mighty king, David is the man after God's own heart, God's chosen king, chosen over Saul. He was still susceptible to as scandalous as a sin, as adultery. But what we learn from the story of David is that there is also hope for those who break the seventh commandment. That God does not leave David in his adultery and in his sin, but God sends him Nathan the prophet. And David falls on his knees in repentance and faith. And Psalm 51 tells us that God washes away David's sin so that he is white as snow. 
And so this evening we want to consider the seventh commandment as it's revealed to us in 1 Samuel 11. And I want to show you this in three movements in our time together this evening. We see that David entertains temptation. Then David falls into temptation. And then we're going to see the fallout. But remember that within that fallout, there is restoration in Christ. David entertains, he yields, and the fallout of David's sin. So as we come to 1 Samuel 11, one thing we need to take stock of is that life is going pretty good for David here. At this point in the history of the kingdom of Israel, the nation is well established. They have had great military might and everyone loves King David. If you flip back just one chapter to 2 Samuel 10, we see that David has just emerged the victor from a whole slew of battles. A battle with the Ammonites and the Ammonites hire mercenaries called the Arameans and they all go against King David and nobody can defeat this mighty king. But we come to verse 1 of 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel 11. And we see that a year has passed and they're putting on the finishing touches of this war by besieging Rabbah. But the focus of Samuel shifts from the battlefield to the king's royal bedchamber. You know what's really ironic about 1 Samuel 11? The passage says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. See, in the Middle East, the winter is the rainy season. And the spring is that time when there would be lush vegetation and the ground would dry out. And so spring has historically, in that Middle Eastern climate, been considered the time of war. This was the time when the ground was hard enough for an army to march upon. This was the time when there was enough vegetation for horses and warriors to sit and to eat. But David is at home. He's not on the battle path. Now, of course, David would have had subjects, and we read in, verse, or in chapter 10 that David did send his subjects to war then, but it always describes David as the one doing the action. In chapter 10, if you just do a quick scan through it, you see that David sends. He meets. He fights. He defeats. And so we're supposed to be jarred by verse 1. When it doesn't say David sends, or David fights, excuse me, or David defeats, look at what verse 1 says. It says, David sent Joab. And he sent his servants, and he sent all Israel, but no king went with them to the battlefield. Now there's nothing in the Bible that says a king must go to battle. But do you know why this is such a problem here in 2 Samuel 11? Flip back to 2 Samuel 8 in your Bibles. In 2 Samuel 8, Samuel reveals the source of Israel's strength. Why did Israel have such victory? Why did Israel defeat enemies that were ten times their size? Verse 14, 
because the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Verse 14. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. But when you come to chapter 11, the king isn't going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. While his men are on the dusty plains of Ammon, risking their lives, trying to protect the national interests of Israel, here we see King David is disengaged with his call. He's not in the good fight. In 2 Samuel 11, David is not the warrior king. He's the vacationing king. Look, I'm not here to tell you you shouldn't go on a vacation. And there's a case to be made that David was actually being wise, doing what his officers told him to, not putting himself in harm's way. Put it this way, we may vacation from our work, but you may never vacation from God's call. That's what David is doing. It's not that he isn't taking a break, a much-needed break, or listening to his commanding officers. He's vacationing from God's call. His heart isn't engaged in what he's been called to do as the king of Israel, and that made him susceptible to cheap thrills. And this is important that we consider David's heart here before we look at David's sin. Because I often hear people when they come and chat, chat with me, and I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot, but they'll say, Satan tempted me to do something. See, the devil is what led me to do this. But when you look at David's sin here, who led him to the rooftop? It wasn't the devil. It wasn't Bathsheba. It was David's own heart. No, it says David arose from his couch, his leisure, walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. What I am suggesting to you this evening is that David is the one who put himself in a place where he could be tempted. Robert Altair, one of the leading uh, Old Testament theolo or biblical interpreters, puts it this way. He says, the narrative shows us the king of Israel is home enjoying his siesta and then represented as peeping at a bathing beauty on the rooftop. He's entertaining temptation here. He's giving audience to the flesh. As somebody comments on this verse, this is the equivalent of staying up late and going on websites you shouldn't be on. And David's actions are totally contrary to what the Bible says people are to do in the face of sexual temptation. You know what the Bible says we are to do with sexual temptation? There's one word. We're to flee from it. Run from sexual temptation. Not entertain it. Not test it. Not see if we can withstand its power and strength. 
Simply put, get out of there. Run from sexual immorality. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul, and it should be noted here that Paul, every time he considers sins that need to be dealt with in the church, we call them viceless, viceless, sexual immorality is always near the top of things that must be avoided for New Testament Christians. But in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 15, Paul says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Look what Paul says. Flee from sexual immorality. The Bible describes our reaction to sexual sin in one word. Flee. Run from lust. Run from temptation. If you feel under pressure and on the verge of doing something or looking at something that you shouldn't, what does the Bible say you must do? Flee. And you know what's most humbling about this story? At the time that David fell into sin, he was so successful. His greatest temptation and sin come to him in his season of greatest blessing. Sometimes when we hear or maybe somebody confides in us that they've fallen into some sin, and we always think, oh, they must have been going through some hard time in life. They must have really been struggling with something. Here, this passage teaches us you can be very successful and still struggle with sin. He is the King Yahweh chose. He is the man who is after God's own heart. And if he cannot look upon temptation in the face and win, then Bonhoeffer is right. No human being has within them the strength to resist. That's why the Bible says flee. You and I do not have the power and the strength within us to look in the face of sexual temptation and overcome. So don't reason with sexual sin. Just run from sexual sin. Don't dabble. Don't experiment. Don't test your resolve. Don't mess around. Don't hang around. The message is very simple this evening. Run. That's what David needed to do. Like Joseph. Run. So the application here is obvious, isn't it, this evening? When temptation comes, you must run. Remember faithful Joseph who when presented with the opportunity to have an affair with Potiphar's wife ran from her. So it is with sexual sin. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, if your eye, if your hand causes you to sin, 
Cut it off. In other words, get away from it. We need to be willing to cut off something, do radical surgery, if it's causing us to sin. Allow me to put this in as practical words as I can. If your Instagram is causing you to fall into sexual sin, delete Instagram. If your phone is causing you to fall into sexual sin, give it to your parents. Staying up late, being on the computer, watching movies, whatever it is, going to you know, the gas station that has old pornographic magazines on it. We have to, as the catechism says, detest it wholeheartedly. Get away from it. Get angry with sexual sin. Hate sexual sin. Because if you don't kill sexual sin, David's going to teach us. It'll kill you. Now, David, in Psalm 51, says, I will teach transgressors your ways. David wants us to learn from his life. And I want to encourage you folks to be reminded this evening that you are never so successful in your Christian walk to not fall in to sin. David lets his guard down and he yields to temptation. That's our second point this evening. David yields to temptation. Now before we continue in David's story, something must be said this evening. And that is that God is not anti-sex nor is he anti-sexuality. Now, I know we have some young children in our room, um, and so that's good, because they need to hear this as well. But if you have any questions about what I'm talking about, don't ask me. Ask your parents. Better that you hear it from them than from me. But what needs to be stated this evening is that God is the creator of marriage. He created them male and female, and He created sexuality. Remember that the first commandment in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. God wants married people to have a flourishing sexual life. This can be seen maybe most explicitly in the Song of Solomon, which is a whole Bible book devoted to romance and intimacy and love. And there is no relationship that we can have in this life that is as intimate and sweet and life-giving as marriage. And then within that relationship, there's nothing as intimate and powerful as sexuality. So it needs to be stated that God doesn't hate sex. He created sex. And in many ways, God pronounces His benediction upon the marriage bed. So when our catechism says in question 108, God condemns all unchastity, and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside the holy state of marriage, what God forbids is not sex itself, but what the New Testament calls sexual immorality. Now what is sexual immorality? 
This is how Jesus in Matthew 7 defines what is lawful and unlawful, sexually speaking. It's what Paul uses in the passage we just read in 1 Corinthians 6. And in the Greek, the word is pornea. Pornea. Which is where we get the English word pornography. And pornea can be defined as any unlawful sexual intercourse, including prostitution, unchastity, and fornication. Now that might be a little difficult to understand, so I like the way that Kevin DeYoung again puts it, who says, we can understand pornea as the things which would make us furious and heartbroken if we found out someone was doing it with our spouse. What is unlawful, sexually speaking, are the things which we would be furious if we found out someone was doing them with our spouse. So we're not talking about handshakes or a side hug after church. What things would make you angry if you found out someone did that with your spouse? That means kissing someone as part of pornea. Inappropriate touching is pornea. Pornography is pornea, sexual immorality. And our catechism defines it well. Unchaste actions, looks, talks, thoughts, or desires. You see that the seventh commandment is actually much broader than just cheating on your spouse. But what David does in 2 Samuel 11 is also immorality, sexual sin. The king sends someone to do a background check on Bathsheba. And that person reports, this is so important, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Why does the author include these details? Because even if David doesn't catch it, she's not an object. She is someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. And so it is with every person who is sexually objectified. That's a human being. Made in the image of God. And sin always hurts people. Bathsheba had a mom. Maybe she had other children. She had a husband. It affects them, and sexual sin affects you. And David was said in 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, to be a man of love. We actually see this if you just look back at 2 Samuel 10. In verse 2, David said, I will deal loyally with them. Speaking of kings who were fighting against him. And the word in Hebrew is actually chesed, which is the word for love. David showed love to his enemies. Think of Absalom. Think of Saul. Think of Abner. But when you read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, There is no love here. 
Look at verse 4. He sent, he took, he lay. The action is so stark. In fact, there's nothing here but action. The text implies no conversation, no hint of care, no affection, no love, only lust. And so as Bathsheba returns to her home, in verse 4 we realize why she was bathing on the roof, purifying herself from uncleanliness. She was purifying herself after her menstruation, according to the law of Leviticus 15. And what that means is that there is beyond the shadow of a doubt, this baby belongs to David. Verse 5, I am pregnant. Something needs to be said here. I'm going to attempt to answer the question, how far is too far? Young people who are dating and engaged ask this question, what is appropriate and not appropriate to do with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? And again, I think Kevin DeYoung really hits the nail on the head here. He says that person, until they're your spouse, is your brother and sister in Christ. And it's not appropriate to uh, touch your brother or your sister. It's not appropriate to have an intimate relationship with your brother and sister, and until that relationship changes, that's how we should regard one another, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And dating is that weird gray area, isn't it? Because it's that place where you're committed but not committed. And we have to reckon with the reality that you're not committed. As much as you love this person and might want to be with them for the rest of your life until you say, I do. That's your brother. That's your sister. Regard them as such. See, David did not look at Bathsheba in this way. Instead, he looked at her as the object of his sexual gratification. And now he's dealing with the consequences. She is pregnant. So we come to our third and final point, the sad fallout of David's giving in. When we sin sexually, and we all fall into this sin, there are only two options. We can either confess our sins and turn from them, or we can try to ignore it and cover them up. And what we see in this story is that when David receives word that Bathsheba is pregnant, what he should have done is immediately confessed his sins and sought forgiveness. Remember, as we've been studying the Ten Commandments, we've learned that repentance is the way to life. Faith is the way to life. But David does not heed that advice. Instead, he seeks to cover it up. And he seeks to cover up his sin in three ways. The first is with trickery. He's going to attempt to trick Uriah into thinking the baby is his. But the problem is Uriah is on the front line of the battles, and so David has to bring him from the front lines to Jerusalem, and he sort of 
poses these questions to him. How goes Joab? How goes the battle? How goes the war? And then he says, go home and be with your wife. We know that Bathsheba is beautiful. How can any man resist her? Phew! Got it covered. Wrong. Uriah, although he is a Hittite, his name means Yahweh is my light. He's a worshiper of the Lord. His heart is pure. And instead of going home and enjoying the pleasures of his own bed and his own wife, he does what David should have done and he thinks of his men on the field and he goes and sleeps in the doorway of the palace with the guards. So David hatches a second plan. You see how hard his heart is getting here. Second plan, get him drunk. Then he won't be able to help himself with Bathsheba. And so they drink together, and even though his home is just a few short steps away, because David could have seen her from the rooftop, instead of stumbling to his wife, he stumbles again to the barracks to be with his men. And David's heart is now so callous, trying to justify himself, so hard due to his sin, he starts plan C. Murder. He gives Uriah a note, sends it to Joab, and it says, verse 15, set Uriah on the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And so Uriah goes, carrying his own death note to the front line of the battle. And as he's fighting for his king, for his country, Mighty men of valor pull back. And the man whose Yahweh is his light is struck down and he dies. You know what's interesting about this story? This cover-up? It seems to bring a false peace to David. That's why Joab says, if David is angry about this defeat, pacify him with the news of Uriah's death. Verse 21. It's almost like David thinks, if I just get what I want, if I can have Bathsheba without any consequences, then I won't have anxiety. I'll have peace. That's what's so shocking about this story. It's that David, the man who grieved over Saul, who hunted him down, who grieved over Abner, who set up a false king opposed to David, that David does not mourn for Uriah. It's a shocking illustration of how far David has gone. His drive to cover up his sin leads him to sin again and again and again. So it is in our own lives. A sin once committed, if suppressed and concealed, only leads to more sinning. I don't want to pick on anyone here this evening. But maybe there are some of you who are here who are on the brink of an enormously foolish decision. Running into a decision you know you shouldn't touch. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's pornography. Cheating in school. Dishonest business practice. Whatever. 
Learn from David this evening that the wisp, that what sin whispers to you, the promise of joy, the promise of peace, the promise of happiness, is a lie. In the end, sin is a road that leads only to disaster. And we see this in the life of David. He marries Bathsheba. But from this moment on, his life is nothing but pain and suffering. His own son will seek to overthrow him. His own sons will struggle with sexual sin. Think of Absalom. His own sons will shed blood. He won't be able to build the temple of the Lord. What he thought would bring him happiness and peace only led to frustration. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. See, David, in the eyes of men, seemed to enact a perfect plan. He was able to have Bathsheba and take out Uriah and nobody was the wiser. But what we read in the last verse is that there is a divine perspective. The thing he had done displeased the Lord. What is done in secret is done before the eyes of the Lord. What is hidden in darkness, it's not too dark for God to see. David thought he could get away with adultery and murder, but remember that David, as the Catechism says, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God wants him clean. God wants David holy. But how can he be made holy? How can he be made holy after adultery and murder? See, that's why this story is also a story of hope. Because one chapter later, flip to chapter 12, God sends David, Nathan the prophet. And Nathan confronts David. Nathan knows the depths of his sin. He knows that he committed murder. He knows that he commits adultery. David should be stoned. He should be thrown, dragged out of the throne room and thrown to the wolves, so to speak. And especially not be allowed in the presence of God for his sin. But what does David do after he's confronted? Look at verse 13. He repents. I've sinned against the Lord. And then look what Nathan does immediately after David confesses. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The moment David confesses, he is forgiven. He is made clean. He is purified. He is, excuse my language here, or my term of speaking, He is made a virgin again before God. You see, we live in a sexually immoral culture. But at the core of the human experience is that we want to be accepted. We want to be validated. We want to be loved for who we are. But the answer to this desire is not found in adultery or sexual promiscuity, pornography, homosexuality, or transgenderism. The fulfillment David needed 
was Christ. He needed Jesus. And you know, Jesus fulfills the seventh commandment. Because He teaches that even for the sexually immoral, there is healing in Christ. There is restoration. There is forgiveness. Even for those who have fallen into gross sins, as the Apostle Paul says in one of his letters, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But Then he goes on to say, such were some of you. They had been changed. Turned around by divine grace. Sin can always be forgiven. And adultery isn't the unforgivable sin. See, what we see in Psalm 51 is that David came to God and received healing for what he had done. He wasn't able to undo the damage he had done. He couldn't bring Uriah back to life. But in Christ, God was able and willing to grant him complete and full pardon for the sins he committed. So let me ask you this evening in conclusion, are you sick of pornography? Are you tired of falling into sexual sin's trap of promising you peace and security and providing none of it? We can be like David in one sense where we try to hide it and rationalize it and only harden our hearts. Or we can be like David and repent of our sins, find forgiveness in our time of need and the fulfillment that we need. Come to Christ this evening. Confess your sin and find what you need. And allow me just to say one more thing. I know I need to conclude, but if you need help, call me. Talk to me. Talk to your elder and know that those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. There is freedom for you from sexual sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You that we're able to come together this evening and to consider Your Word uh, given to us in the life of David. We thank You that even though he entertained and yielded to temptation and there was a great fallout in his life, that there is also a great restoration for David. There is a great restoration for us in Jesus. And even though we have all experienced sexual sin or will experience it. Lord, we thank You for the promise that You can restore and make whole those who have struggled even this day. Father, help us to guard our purity by the power of Your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.